Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I am obviously not John Haley um, in many ways, maybe, but um, my name is Sean Williford, and my wife Janelle and I have the privilege to be your missionaries with Prime Ministries. And John has asked me to preach this morning. I'm thankful this morning to be able to share with you from the Word of God. If you want to take your Bible or your Bible on your electronic device and find your way to the book of Psalms, Psalms, and we will be going to chapter 2, continuing our series on the summer playlist. Before we get into the text, I want to take just a moment. I don't get this opportunity very much just to say thank you. Um, as your missionaries um, and the work that we do, we partner with you to do that. And we could not do that without you. And we just want to sincerely say thank you. <clears throat> and I want to share just a little bit. It's been an exciting couple of months for our ministry. We have a Bible Institute in the Philippines that we started with two campuses. And this first picture is from graduation that took place a couple weeks ago. 21 students graduated. Yeah. These 21 students graduated a 10-course curriculum anywhere from New Testament, Old Testament survey, Bible doctrine survey, church administration, evangelism, discipleship, etc. And 20 of them have been trained to teach. So our model in establishing this Bible Institute is after the model of Jesus. If we can teach and then train, and then they can teach. So this next picture is one of our students, Pastor June Dunwan, on the right there in the black. He has a class now of 10 students. And this is a, a very special building that you may not know that you've played a huge part in. The deacon board a couple years ago, uh, Prime Ministries, our, our ministry sent them an amount of money. Your deacon board, our leadership, matched that amount and then doubled it so that they could have a roof over their church. They were expanding. You put a metal roof on their church and now their church is a campus for a Bible Institute training the next generation. So that's your mission dollars at work. As we continue to expand the next campus, this is the man on the left in the kind of pinkish shirt, is the executive director of the churches there, and he has started a fourth campus for us, 16 students in a neighboring province called Nueva Vizcaya. He has a plan, and we're praying about how to make that happen, to launch another three or four Bible Institute campuses on top of this one. While we were in Jamaica last week, and I'll get to that in a moment, I received a text message through Facebook, we, we communicate through Messenger, from uh, one of our leaders at our Asipulo campus, one of the places where we started. And he sent me a list of 46 students who have already signed up to take classes and they're gonna launch three new campuses. So our goal in the Philippines is to hopefully be over 10 campuses by the end of 2023 and likely over 100 students. And so thank you for partnering with us to spread the gospel around the world. I also want to publicly thank Philip and LaRuth Brown, and I know they don't want recognition, but they just spent the last week with Janelle and I in Jamaica. I say we should probably say we spent the last week with them in Jamaica, Philip showing us around his home country. We've been praying as the Philippines moves into a second phase of ministry of where we could possibly start another educational framework, and the Lord's led us to the Caribbean. We've had some conversation with another organization down there that we think is going to be an avenue for us to launch another Bible Institute. And Philip was 
and, and LaRuth, they were both kind enough to go to Jamaica and suffer for a week with us. Um, we did have some really good meetings. Philip showed us the countryside, and there's a lot of need. Let me give you just an example. Philip's pastor is almost 80 years old. <clears throat> He's been pastoring their church for 51 years. The amazing thing, that's a Baptist church. <laughs> 190 years in a Baptist church, they've had five pastors. Five pastors. He's been pastoring for 51 years. The problem is he also pastors three other churches because there's no pastors in the area. Pastors need to be trained in Jamaica, and the, the need is clear. And so I just want to say thank you very much. If you want to get to know Philip and LaRuth Brown really well, go to Jamaica with them. <clears throat> but I did learn when I was in Jamaica, what happens in Jamaica stays in Jamaica, so I have no stories for you about Philip and LaRuth Brown. But thank you very much for partnering with us as we continue in God's work. The mission field is so important, and that's where Pastor John is today. Pastor John is with a team in Africa. So if you're a guest with us today, um, he'll be back. We invite you to come back and to meet him uh, in his place. My wife and I will be out in the foyer and would love to meet you so we can uh, get to know you and tell him about you uh, so that when you come back to see him, he'll have an idea of who you are. Last week, he preached from the first chapter of Psalm. And it was clear as he was preaching that there is two paths, or there are two paths. There is one path of righteousness, and there's another path of unrighteousness. There's a path of righteousness that leads to life. And there's a path of righteousness, unrighteousness that leads to death. That theme is going to be continued a little bit in the second Psalm as we look at it this morning. Let's read the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 2. I'm reading this morning from the CSB version. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. They said, Let's tear off the chains and throw their ropes off of us. Verse 4, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. Our Heavenly Father, God, we love you and we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning and for you to speak to us. God, I pray that our, our hearts and our minds would be open to your word, to what you have for each one of us today. Lord, as we consider a path of righteousness and unrighteousness, would you show us which path we're on? And God, as we come to the conclusion, Lord, I pray that not one person would leave this room on the path to unrighteousness. Father, we love you and we thank you for sending your son, Jesus the King, to die on a cross, that we might have relationship with you. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. 
Psalm 2 is one of the most referenced psalms in the New Testament. So this morning, we're going to look a little bit at what is the Old Testament context of this song and also what is the New Testament context. Because for us to truly understand the fulfillment of Psalm 2, we have to understand the New Testament context as well as the Old Testament context. In fact, it's in the New Testament in Acts 4, verses 25 and 26, that we learn who the author of this psalm is. Luke writes, You've said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? Does that sound familiar? Verse 1 of Psalm 2. He says, The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. There's a little bit more to Uh, everything we could learn just in that passage about the second psalm. But the first thing we learned in verse 25 is that the New Testament writers attributed Psalm 2 to David. So this morning, we assume and we go with the fact that David is the author of Psalm 2. This psalm is a coronation psalm written by David. So likely at a time where a king was coming into power, David wrote this psalm And if David wrote it, he's either writing it for himself or possibly even for his son Solomon. But it likely would be used as a coronation psalm throughout the generations afterwards. But likely it is written for a specific king at a specific time and likely either David himself or Solomon. This psalm is also a royal psalm or a kingship psalm. As we read the psalm again, as we go through it verse by verse, you're going to see that the kingship or the theme of kingship runs throughout the entire psalm and ultimately to King Jesus. It's also a messianic psalm as it points to Jesus. I don't believe that David, when he wrote this, wrote this as a prophetic psalm. I don't believe, and we'll walk through this and you'll see maybe why that is, but I don't believe that David was writing it in in view of just the Messiah. I really believe from an Old Testament context, David is writing this psalm about the king of Israel and the king of Israel coming into power and the nations that are raging around them and trying to take down Israel. But in a broad sense, a messianic psalm is one that anticipates the person and work of Jesus Christ. And from the New Testament writers, as I mentioned, this is one of the most referenced psalms. We just read one reference, reference. But even in the reference we read, Luke writes that they said against the Lord and against his Messiah. And you'll see that they have attributed Psalm 2 to King Jesus. They have attributed Psalm 2, the the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2, to the person of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. The psalm clearly proclaims this truth. Jesus is king. There's no denying that. That's not even a topic for discussion this morning. Jesus is king. But although Jesus is king, we're going to see in the first three verses that the unrighteous will still rebel. In verse number one, it says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Verse number two, he says, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. This is the passage that was in Acts 4, and if we look at this, we see four different entities, the nation, the peoples, the kings, the rulers, and the nations, it says, the nations rage. They're protesting. They're coming together against the king. They're not happy. It says the peoples plot in vain. 
The people's plot, but their plot is futile against their opponent. They plot in vain. They were making predetermined plans of how to come up against the king. And then in verse 2, it says, the kings of the earth take their stand. That's not simply a, a king maybe sitting in a throne standing up. That word of takes their stand gives the idea that they're ready for battle. They're, they're hunkering in and they're, they have an opponent and they're ready to go. It's me against you. They take their stand in opposition and we'll see who they're in opposition to. And then it says the rulers conspire together. It's not one nation. It's not one people's. It's the nations, it's the peoples, the kings, the rulers. They all come together and they conspire. And it says in verse two, against the Lord and his anointed one. One thing I wanna draw your attention to is that in most of your translations, anointed one is capitalized. That's because the translator of the text has read the New Testament. And in reading the New Testament, they know that the New Testament writers and disciples have attributed this psalm to the Messiah, to Jesus the Christ. And so when he talks about his anointed one here, the translator is the one who has capitalized that. If you're reading from maybe the NLT or the NIV, it actually is lowercase. And maybe a better way of writing that, because as we read the Bible, the Lord, all capitals here, Yahweh, God, and his anointed one, as we see at capital A, capital O, we immediately think Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament context, David is writing about the anointed one of Israel, the king of Israel at the time, whether that be himself or Solomon. So I just want to draw your attention that this is a messianic song, but I don't believe that David intended to capitalize those letters. That is something that's been capitalized by your translator. You may disagree if you read the news today in the world, but for the most part, the leaders of nations are considered to be intelligent. I thought you might laugh. We can disagree with their ideologies. We can disagree with their philosophies. Some of those in leadership who maybe I've disagreed with the most when it comes to ideology or philosophy, I could not disagree with you that they were not intelligent. Now, some of them we could maybe question, and I won't go into that this morning. You apparently have some people in mind as you laugh. But for the most part, they're considered to be intelligent, but in this text already, they are taking their stand against the Lord and the anointed one. It's the nations and the peoples, and especially the kings and the rulers of the world who are considered to be the intelligent ones who are foolish. Standing up to the Lord and his anointed one. When it comes to the anointed one, I want to read from 2 Samuel 22, verses 50 through 51, to kind of make my point about this anointed one. He says, therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, Lord. I will sing praises about your name. Jesus, as the, uh, sorry, is 51 not there? It says, in 51 it says, he is a tower of salvation for his king. He shows loyalty to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So in verse 51 of chapter 22, he says, he is a tower of salvation for his king, the Lord's king, lowercase. He shows loyalty to his anointed, to David. 
So in 2 Samuel, we get the Old Testament context of David is referring to the king of Israel, not necessarily the Messiah. The, the word anointed, though, is where we get the Hebrew word that we get the word Messiah, or what's in Greek called the Christ. I know you're probably familiar, but I'm just going to put it out there in case you're not. But Jesus' last name is not Christ, right? Jesus is the Christ. We shorten him. We call him Jesus Christ. But Jesus is the Christ. It means much more. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the Christ. But here in the Old Testament context, if David is writing this, we likely are talking about the king of Israel, the anointed one. As we are going to see, the New Testament writers are going to identify Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 2. In his essay on Psalm 2, Dr. Jeff Branson said this, Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 2 is the final, unique, and eschatological son who reigns forever as God's anointed. Clearly, we can today take the New Testament context and the New Testament writers, and we can see that Psalm 2 is about Jesus and Jesus is king. The transition from Saul to David, or maybe David even to Solomon, provided an opportunity possibly for the nations to rise up. They saw a change in power, and so the nations rise up, and that's likely the context we're getting here. However, as we know, all nations and all people rise up against the Lord in some way and his anointed one. There are today nations that are unrighteous rising up in evil against the righteous. There are people in our country today that are rising up in unrighteousness against the righteous. But before you judge those individuals as we go about our daily walk, sometimes our unrighteousness rises up against the Lord's righteousness. And it's personal for us as well. The unrighteous now verbally express what's in their hearts. They say in verse 3, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The chains or the ropes give this idea of a yoke. So if we have two oxen and there's a yoke over the oxen, that's been placed there by the farmer who is the authority over the oxen. And the oxen are now doing what the authority or the farmer wants them to do but they're yoked, they're, they, they can't get away, they can't go off on their own path. And so this idea from the kings and the rulers saying, let's tear off the chains and throw their ropes off of us gives the idea that they don't wanna be yoked by the authority. They don't wanna be controlled by the anointed one, by the king of Israel. The truth is they're rebelling against God and his authority, whether that's earthly authority or heavenly authority. They're rebelling. Because rebellion against the Lord's earthly king, David or Solomon or those that came after him, is rebellion against the Lord. And for us today, rebellion against the anointed one, the Christ, Jesus, the Son, is rebellion against the Lord, against God, our Father. If we fail or we refuse to submit to the Lordship of Jesus in our lives, we're no different than these nations. We're no different than the peoples, the kings, or the rulers who are foolish in taking their stand against the anointed one. The unrighteous will rebel, but in verses four through six, we see it's the enthroned one who has declared that Jesus is king. Verse four says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord ridicules them. That little phrase there, the one enthroned in heaven. To be enthroned is to be a judge or a sovereign ruler. It's a place of authority and a place of power. Look at the 
the two characteristics of the, the posture and the location of the one who is enthroned. He is sitting. In his sitting, it suggests a position of authority and of rule and of all power. He is in heaven. The one who is enthroned in verse number four is none other than Yahweh, God our Father. He rules from heaven, from his throne, and has all a power and authority over all the earth. He is really Lord of everything. The rulers and the kings that are mentioned in verse two are Lord of nothing. God is in control of everything, and because he is the Lord of everything, and in reality, they are Lord of nothing, he laughs because that's how foolish their plans are. See, all earthly plots that we might have, all earthly plans that we might have are foolish and laughable to an almighty God. Certainly we can make plans. I'm not telling you this morning not to make plans or to seek after the Lord, but as the Proverbs tells us, it's the man's heart that plans, but it's the Lord who determines our steps. He has all authority and all power. It's so laughable to him I tried to think of an example and I thought of a couple, but I'm just gonna be honest with you, like music is not my thing. I probably sing really low, you don't wanna sit in front of me in church. Stefan is never gonna ask me to come up here. But in my past, I thought, man, it would be cool to play the piano. And Marty would be laughing. <laughs> I would try to play this thing and every, you guys would laugh, but Marty would certainly laugh. And that's how foolish it is for the people to plot against the Lord for me to think that I could play the piano. You might say, oh, well, everybody could play the piano, you just need practice. Um, our time on earth is limited and I don't have that much time. <laughs> the plans of the unrighteous that are against the Lord's will are laughable. This goes beyond just our lunch plans to go and have lunch and spend a lot of money on dessert. By the way, if if you see a chocolate cake and it says Mrs. Haley, it's terrible. <laughs> I would appreciate if you guys would just move on past that and I would be happy to bid on that and eat that for you so that you don't eat too much. I can never afford it. Somebody will spend a lot of money for that cake. But as we get to verse five, it says there's a change in his tone. It says, then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. How does the Lord go so quickly from laughing to anger and wrath? It's because their plots are laughable, but their rebellion is serious. Jesus, God the Father, no longer messing around. It's no longer funny. And this is a tension we're gonna to get to a little bit later in the text, but I wanna draw your attention to it here in verse five. We like to talk about the love of God his mercy and his grace, praise Jesus, but nobody wants to hear a sermon about his wrath and his anger. But we have to understand that as this text brings it out, that wrath and anger against unrighteousness are just as much a part of the essence of Jesus Christ and God the Father as love and mercy and grace. And we have to accept both. Verse number six says, he laughs, his tone changes, and finally, God, Yahweh speaks. He says, I have instilled my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I have instilled. It's definitive and it's decisive. Whether it was King David or it was King Solomon or it's Jesus the king, God has declared 
that they are king. He is decisive. He has installed his king, his anointed, when he says my king, whether that be king of Israel or talking about Jesus Christ. And he has put him in Zion, which is a term for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. He has placed them on the throne in his place of authority here on earth. And one day when there's a new Jerusalem, guess who's reigning? Jesus is still king. Although the unrighteous will rebel, the enthroned one declares Jesus is king. The nations are his. Verse 7 says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter and you will shatter them like pottery. Again, in verse number 7, he says, you are my capital son. Again, when David wrote this, I think he was thinking lowercase son. But because we understand this psalm to be a messianic psalm, we know that when ultimately in the fulfillment of Psalm 2, when he's talking about you are my son, he's talking about Jesus the king, Jesus the Christ. But here I think David is really talking about you are my son or you are my king. And we get that reference from 2 Samuel chapter 7 reading in verse 12 through 14. He says, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, this is God speaking specifically to David. He says, I will raise up after you your descendant, Solomon, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, Solomon's temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then in verse 14, he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. You see, it was common in ancient times for the king or the ruler of a religion to be considered the son of the God and the God to be the father. And so when David is writing here in Psalm chapter uh, 2, verse 7, he says, he said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. He's saying, today you are my king. You are my anointed one, as it's a coronation psalm. In verse 8, we see that he says, the earth and everything in it, including all the nations, belong to the king. Verse number eight says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Now we know if we look back at the Davidic line that at the King David and King Solomon, that that may have been ideal and what God's desire was, but that never came to be. Probably because of the sin of man. But as we look from a New Testament context, we can see that the fulfillment of chapter 2, verse 8, in that I will make all the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession has come to be ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus the Christ. Jesus is king, and he will be Lord over all. In verse number 9, it says, You will break them with an iron scepter, and you will shatter them like pottery. The nations are his and those who stand against him. Those kings who had sunk in ready for a fight, ready for battle. King Jesus will crush them. In Revelation, there's multiple references to Jesus being the son. But I want to read from Revelation 19:15 To give you context, this is the return of Jesus Christ on the white horse. He's coming with the name of king. He's the king of kings and he's the lord of lords. The saints are behind him, and Jesus is riding in on a white horse. And in verse 15, it says, A sharp sword came from his mouth, so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. Verse number 9 in Psalm 2 said, He, he will break them with an iron scepter. 
Same thing. He will rule them in verse number 15 with an iron rod, and he will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. Although David's kingdom never fully reached the extent of Psalm 2, the kingdom of Jesus will. Jesus will be the king of kings. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus, when he comes, will be the Lord of lords. Jesus today is the Lord of lords. And all kings and all rulers will have to humble themselves to the king of kings, to the Lord of lords, to Jesus who is king. One day he will return. When he returns, the unrighteous will be before him and his wrath will be for them. Behind him will be the saints, the righteous, who we're going to see take refuge in him. Although the unrighteous will rebel, the enthroned one declared Jesus is king, the nations are his, and finally we learn that the king is merciful and he is just. In verse number 10, the CSB says, So now, kings be wise, receive instruction, you judges of the earth. If you're reading from the New King James, it likely says, Now therefore... And as you know, in Scripture, when you see, therefore, the word here, so now, we look back and see what it's there for. So this verse is referring to the verses right above it, that Jesus is king, and God has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. Your stand is foolish, kings. So now, or now therefore, be wise. Receive instructions, you judges of the earth. Now the Lord with reverence, or serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son. Again, that's capital, so it points us to Jesus, but in the context of David, he's likely pay homage to the Son or the, the King of Israel, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. It is the King, it is the Lord's anointed who has power but he doesn't strike immediately. He has power to do so, but God is merciful. One of the characteristics that we've already mentioned, that God is love and he is merciful and he is gracious. And in his mercy, he gives them time. He says, so now because Jesus is king over all, because the king of Israel has the authority from heaven, be wise and receive instructions, you judges of the earth. So in verse 10, kings and judges refers right back to the kings and the rulers in verse number two. Those who would take their stand and plot against the Lord and his anointed. Here in verse number 10, he says, be wise and receive instruction. Again, it is the kings of this time who most would have considered wise and intelligent. Yet they are the focus of those needing wisdom and instruction. Because they had earthly wisdom, but they did not have heavenly wisdom. We must seek the heaven or the, the wisdom that comes from above. There's a close connection in chapter 2, in verses 10 through 12, between wisdom and submission. Wisdom and submission. Skip over verse 11 and look at verse 12. The CSB says, Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry and you will perish. I don't know about you, but I don't go around today saying, Hey, would you pay homage? Right? I, I don't. That's not something that's typical in our vocabulary. Some of your texts may say, kiss the sun. Well, I really don't do that either. So what does that mean? In the NLT, they, they maybe get it the best. It says, submit to God's royal son. So to pay homage to the sun or to kiss the sun is actually to submit 
to God's royal anointed one, son, the king of Israel or King Jesus. In our New Testament context today, we would say to King Jesus. Because submit to King Jesus is to submit to God the Father. Submit to the Old Testament king would have been for them to submit to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. So how do we submit? Verse 11, go back to it, says, Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. The truth about serving is that you can't serve unless you are humble. In order for you to serve someone else, you have to take a place of humility. So therefore, these kings and these rulers and us today, we have to take a position of humility before the Lord our God and before Jesus the King in order to serve him. And it says we're to do so with reverential awe. I love those two words together, and I think it's, I think it's maybe two words that we, we don't focus on a lot in our society today. To come into this place with such honor and respect for a Lord and in awe of who he is based on who we are not. To come and to serve him and to rejoice with trembling. Not out of complete fear that we're afraid of what he might do to us, but out of a healthy fear and respect because we know who he is. But we also know that because of who he is that we can live in Christ and rejoice, even in the hard times. Let me suggest to you this morning that as we talk about this word happy or blessed, joy, that it's only the joy that comes from living in Christ that will stand the time of trial. Your happiness will go up and down with circumstances, but true joy can only be found in the Lord. Finally, I want to draw our attention back to this tension of wrath and anger and love and mercy and grace. Verse 12 continues, it says, he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. But then it says, all who take refuge in him are happy. So in verses 10 through 12, we see the mercy of God. And then he says, you better get wisdom and you better submit to the king because the king is angry at unrighteousness. It's a righteous anger. If God is just and righteous, he must, he must judge unrighteousness. If God does not have wrath and anger or judge unrighteousness, God is no longer just and righteous. He's no longer who he says he is. So therefore, in the essence and the character of God, even though we want to talk about his love, his mercy, and his grace, we must also realize that when it comes to injustice, that God has a wrath and an anger, and it's coming. We maybe see little pieces of it, but we won't see the full fulfillment of that until the book of Revelation. And at that point, it's going to be too late. Today is the day to submit to the king, because he will do this as it says, at any moment. Verse 12 is really a merciful offer of salvation by the Lord. It says, all who take refuge in him are happy or blessed or have joy. It's not an emotion based on circumstances. It's a joy that we find when we find ourselves and identify ourselves in Christ. Don't identify yourselves in the things of the world. If you are a Christian, identify yourself as being in Christ, and that is where true joy can be found says all who take refuge, all who submit to his kingship and his lordship. Revelation 19 tells us of his, tells us of his return. 
When he returns, it says he's coming and those before him are the unrighteous and his wrath and his anger is coming. But as he rides, the saints are behind him. They've taken refuge. They have salvation. What are they saved from? They're saved from the wrath and the anger. And the saints are behind him and riding with him. We won't even lift a finger. It'll be over like that. But the question for you today is, do you want to be in front of him on that day or do you want to be behind him? If Jesus is not your king, you will be in front of him. We have a choice to make today because the truth is, Jesus is king. The question this morning as we've laid it out in Psalm 2 is not, is Jesus king? I told you at the very beginning, Jesus is king, period. It's not up for discussion this morning. Jesus is king, but what is up for discussion and what you need to consider this morning is Jesus, your king. Because the rest of it doesn't matter if Jesus is not your king. Jesus must be your king. You see, verse 12 is an invitation, really, of salvation. Verse 12 is a a call to come and to take refuge and to submit to God the Father. And I love this saying. The invitation is global. We have a team over in Africa right now sharing this same exact message. Not Psalm 2, but the idea that Jesus is king. The idea that you need Jesus. Jesus is your savior. They're sharing that same message in Africa. The invitation is global, but the response is personal. My salvation will not save my children. My parents' salvation will not save me. The the invitation is global, but today you need to make a choice. Everybody in here has a choice to make. If you've already made that choice, and you can stand this morning and say, Jesus is my king, let him be your Lord. The thing we struggle with the most is that Jesus is our king, but we refuse to let him be our Lord. There's something that we're holding on to that we don't give to him. If you're on the other side of that, let me invite you this morning. Take your stand. Take your stand like the kings did, but stand on the right side where Jesus is king and let him fight that battle as we sung this morning. There's no reason for us to fight battles that Jesus has already fought. He fights the battle for us. Is Jesus your king? As the band comes, as we close out this morning, Let me just ask you, if there's anybody in here that would stand this morning, a lot of times we say, close your eyes, bow your heads. I think sometimes Romans 1 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The kings are willing to take their stand against him. Are you willing to take a stand for him? Is there anybody this morning who would say, Jesus is not my king, but I want him to be my king? All it takes sometimes is one to stand and another will stand. Is there just one maybe this morning that would stand and said, I want Jesus to be my king. Thank you, sir. Anybody else? Jesus is not your king this morning, but you want Jesus to be your king because when he comes, you want to be on the the backside watching the battle, not on the front side receiving the wrath. Is Jesus your king?